Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, The Life of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, had a dream for the monarchy. A dream that would depend for its success on their four sons. They saw their court as a new Camelot. And what they were doing in rearing these sons in particular was creating a new order of chivalry. Princes must be raised to look as if they deserve their position. Princes must, must be better than anyone else. Bertie and Affie, Leopold and Arthur, they would be standard bearers of a new moral monarchy. But princes rarely turn out that way. Bertie is a throwback. He has a nicely old-fashioned aristocratic attitude towards sex, which is that you get as much of it as you can with whoever you can. Affy is like a kind of second-rate version of Bertie. You know, he's really not very bright, and he's constantly having affairs with other people. The relationship between Victoria and her sons would be an epic drama of sex and defiance. A battle of wills. The Queen was determined to win. Really, one could only call her a control freak. Her behaviour was that of a domestic dictator. Every inch of liberty is taken away from one, and one is watched and everything one says or does is reported. And there was this kind of sense that, you know, you may be able to defy a mother, but how dare you even consider defying a sovereign? The battle with the Queen would dominate and scar her sons. But it would have a surprising outcome. And from it, the monarchy would emerge reinvigorated in ways Victoria could never have foreseen. On November 25, 1861, the Queen's husband, Prince Albert, dashed to Cambridge for a meeting with their oldest son, Bertie, who would later rule as King Edward VII. The 20-year-old Prince of Wales, who was at university, had committed what his parents believed to be a mortal sin. He'd had sex with a woman while staying at an army base in Ireland. The problem with Bertie's escapade with Nellie Clifton, who was a good-time girl-come-actress, was that it was pretty average rites of passage for any young Victorian gentleman. They all went off and had a night with a prostitute or went to a brothel. But Albert's response was absolutely hysterical. He had this pathological fear about the power of sex and what it could do in terms of bringing scandal and dishonour on the British royal family. And he went into complete meltdown. 
Victoria and Albert were engaged in a project to rescue the monarchy, to convert it into a model family, which ordinary people could look up to and admire. At the heart of the project was a romantic fantasy that at Windsor Castle they had recreated the Court of Camelot. Queen Victoria's favorite painting of Albert was of him wearing medieval armor. And I think she did think of him as a sort of pure medieval knight kind of King Arthur figure. And I think she thought she was handing on to her sons ideals of purity and chivalry. The aim was to bury the memory of the debauched house of Hanover, who had ruled Britain before Victoria, and so insulate the monarchy from the revolution sweeping Europe. Theirs would be a new dynasty for a new age, pure and virtuous. Their sons, latter-day knights. It was a fantasy that had sexual morality, personified by the saintly Albert, at its core. But Bertie had let the side down. As he and his father walked in the countryside near Cambridge, they were caught in a downpour. Albert returned to Windsor with a fever and was dead within three weeks. The Queen was inconsolable. He was her world. He arranged, controlled, organized every aspect of her life and the family's life. She said it was like tearing the flesh from her bones. She was utterly rudderless. A single mother of 42, she would now have to cope alone, not just with Bertie, but three other boys. Alfred, always known as Affy, who was 17. Arthur, who was 11 and the youngest, Leopold, who was eight. As they approached manhood, the prospect filled Victoria with dread. Sex was an area that she couldn't control. The queen was no prude, but when it came to telling her boys how to behave in that area, she was at a loss in all at sea, because in that area in particular, she needed her husband. Victoria had no doubt whom she held responsible for her loss, the Prince of Wales. Basically, Victoria blamed Bertie for Albert's death. She decided that it was the shock of the Nellie Clifton affair that had, had sort of tipped Albert over, and she decided that it was Bertie's terrible, terrible behaviour and character that had killed her beloved husband. In letters, Victoria made her feelings plain. I never can or shall look at him without a shudder. This dreadful, dreadful cross kills me. The terrifying thing about that line in a letter is not, um, I never can, no, I never shall look at him, is if she's preparing for the rest of her life to reject her son. Victoria's relationship with her eldest son had been difficult from the first. From earliest infancy, Bertie was a disappointment to both of his parents. The problem with Bertie is that he is temperamentally very different from Prince Albert. 
and that is unforgivable. Victoria's letters when Bertie was a child suggest an almost physical distaste. Handsome, I cannot think him, with that painfully small and narrow head, those immense features and total want of chin. Even his voice annoyed her, making her... So nervous I could hardly bear it. To help create the perfect night of their fantasy, Victoria and Albert had imposed on Bertie an intense educational regime, which overwhelmed him. His parents' disapproval crushed him. Bertie didn't realise that he was going to become King of England because he assumed it would be his older sister, Vicky, and it had to be pointed out to him by a tutor that he would be king uh, because he was just so convinced that Vicky was so much cleverer than he was she would automatically be queen. I had no boyhood, Bertie would lament in later life. Now his misdemeanour with Nellie Clifton meant that for Victoria, her son, christened Albert after his father, was not just a disappointment, but a disgrace. She had one Albert being replaced by another Albert, and it was like some horrible joke. This dreadful kind of parody of her husband suddenly sitting there smirking at her. Her life just fell apart. Victoria was forced to confront a dreadful truth. Her oldest son had not inherited his father's personality. He'd inherited hers. Queen Victoria is a Hanoverian. You know, her father was a Hanoverian, and she has many of the characteristics. She, she loves sex. Uh, she has a terrible temper and a huge amount of common sense, basically. <laughs> and her son, Bertie, is um, a copy of her, but more extreme. Her relationship with her second son, Prince Alfred, was initially less complex. Two and a half years younger than Bertie, Affy had been his father's favourite son. He was mechanically minded, he was intelligent, certainly more intelligent than Bertie, and he seemed to have a, a lot of promise. From a young age, Affy displayed a love for the Royal Navy, and the image of the sailor prince captured the public imagination, spawning a spate of patriotic ditties. God bless our sailor prince, God bless our sailor prince, long may his name For a time, Prince Alfred and the Prince of Wales were educated together, but it was not to last. When Affy was 11, and Bertie 14, the two boys were caught smoking together. Fearful Affy would be contaminated by Bertie's poor behaviour, their parents separated them. For the next three years, Affy lived alone with his tutor, away from his family, while Bertie stayed at home. Affy taught himself the violin in secret to impress his parents. He was not a natural musician. At the age of 14, he joined the Navy. And he was at sea when his beloved father died three years later. 
you can imagine the loneliness, the grief of this really still young boy, just 17, on active service, um, serving his country uh, far away from, from the father that he'd loved and never being able to, to finally say goodbye. In the spring of 1862, Prince Alfred returned to a court in mourning and a queen incapacitated with grief. As if losing his father wasn't bad enough, Afi was faced with a mother who frankly couldn't communicate, couldn't operate effectively for a number of years. In other words, in some senses, he'd lost not one parent but two. A grieving Afi returned to sea. A few months later, the Queen discovered he'd had sex with a young woman in Malta. She was horrified. Afi has dealt a heavy blow to my weak and shattered frame and I feel quite bowed down with it. There is not a particle of excuse. His conduct was both heartless and dishonourable. Sailors might indulge themselves in port. Princes couldn't. Like Bertie, Afi's behaviour threatened the Queen's cherished vision of a virtuous, pure monarchy, and he would suffer the same fate. Subsequently, Queen Victoria expresses deep distrust and dislike and real horror sometimes at the presence of Afi and says that she can't bear to be with him. Certainly the Queen never forgave him for that, and their relationship from this point onwards was fractured almost beyond repair. The Queen now shifted her attention to her third son, Arthur. Nine years younger than Bertie, Prince Arthur was always Victoria's favourite, as she had made quite clear in letters to her husband. This child is dear, dearer than the rest put together. Thus, after you, he is the dearest and most precious object to me on earth. Arthur could do no wrong. The other sons suffered as a result of their being frozen out of their mother's love, their mother's interest. And when your mother's the monarch, when she's Queen of England, this can have a very real impact on your life. From a young age, Arthur was fascinated by the army. He helped build a toy fort at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Here at last was a prince who might truly live up to his father's chivalric ideals. However, Arthur's behavior in the classroom was not much better than that of his eldest brother, as his tutor made clear in a letter to the Queen. Prince Arthur has not even on any single one occasion done anything which was recommended to him kindly. By firmness alone, and that of an unintermittent and most trying kind, has any improvement ever been obtained. The Queen, though, was determined her angel could do no wrong. For the rest of his youth, Victoria would have one goal for Arthur above all others. To keep him as far away as possible from his libidinous older brothers. The heir, the sailor, the soldier. The first three sons had their roles clearly outlined. But what of the fourth, Prince Leopold? Twelve years younger than Bertie, Leopold was the cleverest and most intellectually curious of the boys. 
as Victoria herself recognised. His mind and head are far the most like of any of the boys to his dear father. But he was not a child she warmed to. As with Bertie, her criticisms focused on his appearance. A very common-looking child, very plain in the face, clever but an oddity, and not an engaging child. The ugliest and least pleasing of the whole family. Leopold had haemophilia, a disease which prevents the blood from clotting. Potentially fatal, he had inherited it from his mother, although she was not a sufferer. From Victoria and her children, the disease would flow into the royal bloodlines of Europe, afflicting the monarchies of Spain, Germany and Russia. Leopold's illness was diagnosed when he was six years old. She punishes both herself and Leopold for his illness. At the same time, she turns him into an emblem of Victorian popular culture, which is this figure of the saintly, suffering invalid. It was a sentimental image familiar to the readers of Dickens. Like the little boy in Dombian's son, who is ever so sweet and saintly and close to heaven and he might die at any moment but that's okay because God will take him. She's trying to cast Leopold in that mould which is really rather unfortunate because what she has is not a saintly child. It's a very feisty, sort of quick-tempered child who is determined he's going to overcome his illness. Prince Leopold was abroad, convalescing, when his father died. Ever self-absorbed, his mother wrote him an anguished letter. Poor Mama is more wretched, more miserable than any being in this world can be. I pine and long for your dearly beloved Papa so dreadfully. When Leopold returned to Britain, Victoria sent his tutor firm instructions. Take care and make poor little Leopold understand that his return will be a very sad one, that he comes back to a house of mourning, and that his poor broken-hearted mother cannot bear noise, excitement, etc. Not yet nine, the walls were closing in on Leopold. In time, his home would become a prison. Victoria, meanwhile, was still wrestling with the morals of her eldest son and heir, rumoured, in the wake of the Nellie Cliveden affair, to have developed an insatiable appetite for the pleasures of the flesh. Because of Bertie getting into all these scrapes, and Victoria and Albert both having no sense of humour and no sense of proportion about it at all, it became essential, once Victoria was widowed, to marry Bertie off in a hurry. To keep him out of mischief, Bertie was packed off on a trip to the Holy Land with a middle-aged clergyman. They had to send him abroad in such a way as he wouldn't be picking up prostitutes everywhere between uh, <laughs> Paris, Vienna, Jerusalem, wherever he was travelling. So they sent him on a tour of the Levant with the future Dean Stanley. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a ridiculous uh, holiday that they sent him on. I mean, totally inappropriate. While Bertie toured the monasteries of the Middle East, his mother set in train plans for a wedding with Princess Alexandra of Denmark, known as Alex. Alex was rather like Bertie, not particularly well-educated. She was very beautiful and she was very good-natured. I don't think she was particularly bright and she certainly wasn't interested in you know, any intellectual pursuits. Perfect for Bertie, in other words. And the prince was happy to do as he was told. One of the things that his parents had managed to school him in was the fact that you would marry the person that you were told to marry. And I think he decided that that was fine. You know, that was his fate. And actually, thank God, you know, they'd chosen somebody who was pretty and fun. The young couple were married at Windsor in March 1863. The Queen, still dressed in mourning, a somewhat gloomy presence. After the ceremony, Bertie and his bride were obliged to share the wedding photo with the groom's mother, who resolutely ignored them, staring instead at a bust of her dead husband. The Queen installed the newlyweds at Marlborough House, just a few hundred yards from Buckingham Palace. It quickly became clear she expected to exert the same control over Bertie's adult life as she had over his childhood. Victoria, from right at the beginning of the marriage, tries to set a timetable. She tries to uh, dictate how much time they're allowed out, how much time Alexandra is allowed, for example, riding in the park, which I think initially is not at all. Victoria recruited the household servants as spies, including the doctor, who was required to pass on details of Alex's menstrual cycle. Really, one could only call her a control freak. She went on and on and on, and she felt that, as queen, she had the right to go on and on. But Bertie was showing surprising resourcefulness. Bertie was very good at somehow sort of slipping through these nooses. He reacted to her by being incredibly polite. You never see in his letters or in his behaviour that he's exactly scared of her, but he works out ways of sort of skirting her. And very quickly, he and Alexandra managed to establish actually a very, very sociable circle at Marlborough House. Gradually, Bertie dismissed the servants the Queen had imposed on him and began to display qualities his mother lacked. I think he realises the one thing he has that his parents don't have is he can make people like him. I think his parents had no use for charm. Marlborough House was the opposite of the Queen's gloomy court. Open, inclusive, glamorous. It reflected Bertie's extrovert personality and provided an alternative vision of monarchy. One where the stress was not on morality and sexual purity, but on theatre and show.
Victoria now devoted her efforts to keeping her remaining sons as far away as possible from the den of upper-class iniquity that was Marlborough House. Where Affie and Arthur were concerned, she had the ideal solution. What Victoria's reign coincides with is the most extraordinary expansion of empire. And it was a genius, in a sense, for Albert and later Victoria to set up a system which is still in play today of sending young princes out into the world to somehow bind uh, the mother country to these far-flung colonies. The princes would be ambassadors of empire, binding colonies, not just to the mother country, but to the crown. But for Afi, the second son, it was a role that did not come naturally. His violin playing hadn't improved either. It came to epitomize a grating, discordant personality. Fiddle out of tune and noise abominable, complained one unwilling listener. Deprived of his beloved father, distant from his mother, by his mid-twenties, Afi had a reputation as a drinker and a womanizer. In 1867, Afi was dispatched to Australia. His limitations were cruelly exposed. Afi proved to be the most incompetent ambassador for Britain that you could possibly imagine, really. He wasn't a particularly tactful figure. I mean, there he was, uh, scooting through Australia, waiting to be received by all of these local dignitaries. If he didn't fancy meeting them, he would just drive the coach straight past and leave them all standing there. What he was really interested in doing was shooting things. He shot possums, wombats. He had no sort of restraint at all when it came to massacring animals. But the tour ended in high drama. On March 12, 1868, at a picnic in Sydney, Prince Alfred suddenly found himself at the other end of the barrel. This character comes up behind him and shoots him in the back, almost from point-blank range. Now, very luckily, the bullet just misses his spine, passes through his chest cavity and lodges in his uh, ribs at the front. And th this is a, a shot, frankly, that easily could have killed him. The would-be assassin was an Irish Republican. The prince made a swift recovery. But the queen was unsympathetic, seeming almost to resent the attention her son was receiving. I am not as proud of Affy as you might think for he is so conceited himself and at the present moment receives ovations as if he had done something, instead of God's mercy having spared his life. Prince Arthur, Victoria's favourite, proved rather more successful as a colonial ambassador. He also delighted his mother by managing to steer clear of sexual scandal. I have excellent accounts of Arthur. He, at least, follows in his beloved father's footsteps as regards character and sense of duty. But for the fourth son, Leopold, watching his brothers travel the world, there was only frustration. Battling his haemophilia, 
Prince Leopold had grown into an intelligent, thoughtful teenager. A talented pianist, he yearned to escape the stifling atmosphere at court. But for him, there could be no knightly role. Instead, his mother continued to treat him as a saintly invalid. All the essentially English notions of manliness must be put out of the question. He must be constantly watched. I do not wish that any attempt should be made to remove him from me. Victoria compounded Leopold's problems by placing him in the care of Archie Brown, younger brother of her unpopular Highland servant, John Brown. What the Queen had done was to put a bully in charge of her son. And there are no two ways about it. Archie Brown bullied him. Leopold described his treatment in letters. He is fearfully insolent to me, hitting me on the face with spoons for fun. He does nothing but jeer at and be impertinent to me every day. I could tear him limb from limb. I loathe him so. Archie taunts him and teases him. And he's completely at the mercy of this. And the gentlemen of the household knew this and were on Leopold's side and tried very, very hard to suggest to the Queen that Archie Brown was not the right person. And, of course, all the Queen saw was English prejudice and she didn't listen. And this went on for years. In letters to friends, Leopold poured out his anger. The life here is becoming daily more odious and intolerable. Every inch of liberty is taken away from one, and one is watched, and everything one says or does is reported. Oh, how I do wish I could escape from this detestable house. I am looking forward to the day I shall be able to burst the bars of my iron cage and fly away forever. The Battle of Wills was also intensifying between the Queen and the Prince of Wales. Everything Victoria disapproved of, uh, Bertie does. Victoria was really down on smoking. Bertie is never without a cigar in his hand. Victoria disapproved of dining out with the aristocracy. Bertie is constantly dining out with the aristocracy. It is a rebellion um, against um, what Victoria's court stands for. <laughs> The Prince of Wales was now in his late twenties. He was a father of three, but his sociability was beginning to tip over into a voracious hedonism. As Bertie's waistline spread, the image of a pure chivalric knight fitted ever less comfortably. Bertie is a throwback. He has an old-fashioned aristocratic attitude towards sex, which is that you get as much of it as you can with whoever you can. You try not to get caught, and if you do, you pay people off. Freed of parental constraint, Bertie plunged himself into a world of pleasure, regularly visiting brothels and keeping a string of high-society mistresses, behaviour that may also have had its roots in his unhappy childhood. Many people would think he was a strad human being. Freud says the reason men go to prostitutes is to take revenge on their mother. 
His long-suffering wife, Alex, had little alternative but to tolerate Bertie's philandering. But then, in 1870, Bertie's scandalous private life burst into the open when he was named in a high-profile divorce case. It's tremendously humiliating and it's extremely shocking and he's certainly seen as having pulled the royal family into disrepute. This was a direct threat to the Queen's vision of a pure and virtuous monarchy. But when the prince appeared in court, something strange happened. He was asked just a handful of questions and allowed to leave the witness box. Someone in the background, it seems, had pulled strings. Whenever there's a crisis, this happens. Victoria stands by him. And that was very important to his survival in the case because it meant that the government, Gladstone, the Prime Minister, also um, backed Bertie, and that meant that he, wasn't, um, he was given an easy ride in court. Um, he wasn't given a tough cross-examination. Mother and son had closed ranks. And by 1870, the Queen had good reason to feel the monarchy was under threat. She had been in mourning for almost a decade, effectively a recluse, and the sympathy of the British people was beginning to wear thin. William Gladstone, a Liberal Prime Minister Victoria loathed, expressed the problem bluntly. To speak in rude and general terms, the Queen is invisible and the Prince of Wales is not respected. One wag placed a sign on the railings at Buckingham Palace, declaring the premises vacant the late occupant having retired from business. With Republican sentiment growing, the Prince of Wales found himself with a rare opportunity to lecture his mother. If you sometimes came to London from Windsor and then drove for an hour in the park, the people would be overjoyed. We live in radical times, and the more the people see the sovereign, the better it is for the people and the country. But the Queen refused to budge. And Bertie, along with the rest of his siblings, knew that a direct confrontation with her was out of the question. She let them know at all times that she wasn't just their mother, she was their Queen, and they had no chance to disobey her. They know that she can get you a job, she can dish out a nice house, and she can certainly dish out uh, money, you know, uh, from the civil list. The family was at an impasse. The Queen refusing to end her seclusion, the children terrified to challenge her. It was the greatest crisis of Victoria's reign. Then, in November 1871, the Prince of Wales fell ill at his newly acquired country estate of Sandringham in Norfolk. The diagnosis? Typhoid. The very illness from which his father was believed to have died precisely ten years before. Queen Victoria comes up to Sandringham and it's all slightly embarrassing because Bertie with his typhoid is raving away, he's got terrible dementia and he's raving away mentioning the names of various mistresses that he shouldn't really mention and Alex has to be sent out of the room because he's saying such unmentionable things. 
And all the royal princes are sort of giggling, you know, all his brothers are giggling away at the things that he's saying, dad's dad's. So, uh, on the one hand, it's quite funny, but on the other hand, um, uh, nobody, you know, th there was a real danger that he might die. The illness reached its climax on December 14th, the anniversary of Albert's death. The newspapers carried regular bulletins and the prince's life hung in the balance. And then, amazingly, um, he turns the corner and recovers. And this has the extraordinary effect of causing a complete sort of flip-flop in public opinion. A few months later, huge crowds turned out for a service of thanksgiving at St Paul's Cathedral. By almost dying, Bertie had established an emotional bond with the people. His infidelities and his philandering, it seemed, didn't matter, despite the Queen's fears. And she too, persuaded to come out of seclusion, for a day at least, was rapturously received. The threat to the monarchy had evaporated. But the conflict between Victoria and her youngest son was now reaching crisis point. By the start of the 1870s, Leopold was plotting an escape route. Oxford University. He is an intelligent and intellectually curious man in a way that a number of his brothers weren't. Um, but he also longs for the chance to live anywhere but under his mother's roof. This is what Oxford represents to him. He sees it as a place where he can fit in. It won't matter if he's not that strong or if he's sometimes ill. He's clever. But, as ever, there was an obstacle. Her policy is one of silence. When Prince Leopold asks to go to university at Oxford, Queen Victoria didn't speak to him about it for seven months. You know, why couldn't he be content to sit at home and read books or play the piano with his sister? She makes it a health argument, but it isn't really. It's a keeping him at home argument. Leopold was persistent. Finally, the Queen gave in. But she did so grudgingly. The inconvenience that it will entail on me in not having a grown-up child in the house will be considerable. I have consented on the condition that it is merely for study and not for amusement that you go there. She insisted the prince live at a house in North Oxford with hand-picked minders and that any friends be restricted to young men marked out either by birth or by their quiet and steady qualities as fit acquaintances. Really the whole idea was, if you're going to Oxford, I'm still in charge. And you will have as much of Oxford as I say you will have. You can go to lectures, but I don't want you to enjoy yourself. This is the bottom line. But enjoy himself, Leopold did. Oxford would be a dreamlike interlude in his life during which he moved into the orbit of the Liddell family, 
whose daughter Alice had provided the inspiration for Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Alice was now a young woman, and Leopold was even rumoured to be in love with her. But it was another character in the story who would have been most familiar to him. The Queen, you don't have to squint very hard at to realise, is a parody of his mother, losing her temper all over the place, um, stomping around, being wildly unpredictable. Here, at last, was a world of ideas, of intellectual stimulation, of freedom. But in 1876, Leopold's time at Oxford came to an end. He was 23, and still desperate to find a useful and fulfilling role in life, as far away as possible from his mother. It was a problem his oldest brother, now in his mid-thirties, was also wrestling with. For all his hedonism, the Prince of Wales yearned to be treated as a grown-up. I think Victoria does infantilise him. She doesn't give him a chance to grow up, certainly. You know, she criticises him for not being responsible, not working, and yet she doesn't allow him any responsibility. It's a no-win situation for him. Bertie pleaded to be given a key to the Queen's government dispatch boxes so that he could share in her official duties and learn the profession of monarch. He was refused. Victoria's reason for not giving him access is saying that he's indiscreet. And she tells everybody that, Bertie, if you tell him a secret, he will tell everybody at a dinner party and the secret will no longer be a secret. Bertie deeply resented this and was angry that he was often kept out of the family business. In 1875, the Prince of Wales took matters into his own hands and organised for himself a trip to Britain's richest possession, India. The Queen, so keen to see her younger sons act as ambassadors of empire, was furious. Victoria didn't want Bertie to go to India because she thought there would be a scrape. She, she had visions of him um, climbing um, rope ladders up, <laughs> up the walls of Indian harems. But Bertie surprised her. He was charming, he was gracious, he remembered names and faces and played the part of an imperial prince to perfection. Like Prince Alfred, he carried out a wholesale slaughter of wildlife. But these hunting trips with the Maharajas were all part of the performance. He grasped the theatre of empire. He knew how to dress, he knew how to present himself, he knew how to, to put himself on display. He believed in ostentation and this was part of the role of monarchy. Indian princes were incorporated into the whole royal mystique and their loyalty was partly generated by the spectacle that he created going past on his elephant, looking the part of a kind of living god. India proved the perfect stage for Bertie's ceremonial, theatrical vision of monarchy. It would be a template for all royal tours that followed. The prince also revealed himself to be more enlightened than most colonial officers. He told one, 
Because a man has a black face and a different religion from our own, there is no reason why he should be treated as a brute. The Queen, who loved India and Indians, agreed. But Bertie's ceremonial vision of monarchy left her unmoved. She complained her son's letters were boring. Bertie's progresses lose a little interest and are very wearing, as there is such a constant repetition of elephants, trappings, jewels, illuminations and fireworks. Queen Victoria was jealous of the success of her eldest son in India. She thought that the key thing was her uh, imperial position, not his uh, vulgar jaunts to, to the ends of the earth. While the Prince of Wales was on his way home, Victoria stole his thunder, accepting a proposal from her favorite prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, that she be crowned Empress of India. She didn't even tell Bertie, who found out from the press and was furious. In no other country in the world would the next heir to the throne have been treated under similar circumstances in such a manner. I think it's very interesting that Victoria really conforms to the Hanoverian tradition of being poisonous to your heir, treating the heir really almost as an enemy. And yet Bertie doesn't respond in the conventional Hanoverian fashion. He never intrigues against her. So um, he, in a way, is, is the one who understands the way in which politics are changing, and Victoria doesn't. William Gladstone, the leading statesman of the day, could see Bertie's qualities. He would make an excellent sovereign. He is far more fitted for that high place than her present majesty now is. He would see both sides, he would always be open to argument. He would never domineer or dictate. But the Queen's own comments on her son remained chilling. I often pray he may never survive me, for I know not what would happen. Victoria continued to exclude her oldest son from all state business. Her youngest, meanwhile, was launching another bid to escape her clutches. In 1882, Leopold married Princess Helen of Waldeck in Germany. The Queen accepted the match, but was embarrassed by the sight of Leopold leaning on a walking stick at the wedding. It is a sad exhibition, and I fear everyone must be shocked at it. I pity her, but she seems only to think of him with love and affection. The couple quickly produced a child, and Leopold then put himself forward for the role of Governor of Victoria in Australia, about as far away from his mother as he could get. But the Queen blocked the move. His first duty is to me, but this he has never understood. Sad and suffering as I am, I was made quite ill by this new and totally unexpected shock. Leopold pleaded with his mother. My brothers have been given appointment after appointment. And though the many sad disappointments of my life have not led me to expect much, it would indeed be bitter to lose this, the last thing I shall ever beg of you. Not for the first time, 
the stress of conflict with his mother undermined Prince Leopold's health. Mental health, emotional health can affect bleeding in haemophilia and certainly this seems to be borne out with Leopold. Throughout his life it's very striking that when he clashes with his mother his health declines. Leopold went to the south of France to recuperate. There, on March 27, 1884, he banged his knee while climbing the stairs at the Yacht Club in Cannes. The accident caused severe internal bleeding and he was carried back to his hotel. He wrote to his wife, actually it's a heartbreaking letter because it ends. Darling, the pain is struggling so with me, I cannot write more. And the signature physically tails off. And this is his last letter. Leopold died in the night from what were described as convulsions. He was only 30. His short life blighted not just by illness, but also, it seems, by his mother's mania to control. Victoria mourned Leopold's death, but lamented his refusal to resign himself to the life of an invalid. For dear Leopold, there was such a restless longing for what he could not have that seemed to increase rather than lessen. Victoria now an old woman, had lost the one son who genuinely resembled his sainted father. The other three were now well into corpulent middle age. Only Prince Arthur, now commander of the British army in Bombay, was on good terms with his mother. She remained determined to view Bertie as a disappointment. While Afi, the other black sheep, was about to bring the story of Victoria's family full circle. In 1893, Afi became Duke of Saxe-Coburg in Germany, a title he had inherited from his father's family. He moved into the palace of Rosenau, where Prince Albert had been born 74 years before. It was not a happy homecoming. This character who's been used to roaming the high seas all of a sudden is placed in this landlocked, relatively insignificant little German principality where things don't go terribly well. We have a sense at the end of Afi's life of a man who is isolated by disappointment and unhappiness. He had become uh, commander-in-chief of the British Navy, but when he became Duke of Saxe-Coburg, had to give that up. Victoria and Albert had dreamed of a Europe united in peace and harmony through their family. But Afi now found himself a dynastic relic, an English prince stranded in the newly united Germany. Subordinate to his overbearing and erratic nephew, Kaiser Wilhelm. Estranged from his wife and drinking heavily, the sailor prince died of cancer in 1900. He was 55. 
Six months later, the remaining family gathered at Osborne around the deathbed of the Queen herself. Of her nine children, three were now dead, and the oldest, Vicky, lay dying in Berlin, also of cancer. For all of them, life had been a struggle to survive the extraordinary personality of their mother. I feel that none of her children doubted their love for her. What they may have questioned is the nature of that love, and there are certainly occasions when all nine of her children had reason to consider Victoria's love rather a selfish thing. I think they did a very good job, actually, of, of what could have been quite a crippling emotional experience, being endlessly harangued about how imperfect they were in comparison with their perfect father. Really, it was not until after Victoria's death that they could really, really live their own lives. None had felt the weight of her disapproval more than Bertie. On her deathbed, his mother asked him to kiss her, and he wept, a kind of reconciliation. She died the next day. Her body laid out beneath the death portrait of her beloved husband who had died 40 years before. Victoria was buried amidst grandeur befitting the queen of the world's greatest imperial power. She was the grandmother of Europe. Five reigning monarchs and seven grand princes escorted her to her grave. Most of them related to her. But within 14 years, they would be in conflict as the dynastic web Victoria had woven across Europe unraveled in war and revolution. Of the great imperial dynasties of Europe, only Victoria's would survive, in no small part because of the abilities of her son, now King Edward VII, who would reign for nine years with tact, charm and diplomacy. Bertie is the great survivor. He comes to the throne and he makes a huge, huge success of being king within relatively limited tram lines, I suppose, but he is a very, very successful king. Victoria and Albert had believed in a monarchy that reigned by moral example, a new Camelot. But morality has never sat easily with princes. Bertie offered an alternative a monarchy providing ceremony and theatre, ranking public duty above domestic virtue. In the century since, as media scrutiny has grown ever more intense, Bertie's vision has generally proved a safer option for the royal family. That was the final of Queen Victoria's Children. Next week on SBS One, Dr Suzanne Lipscomb sets out on a journey to reveal the real history behind the royal couple whose love transformed a nation in Henry and Anne, Lovers Who Changed History. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. 
Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.